Yeah, I don't know if you guys are are maybe feeling it the same way that that I'm feeling it, but uh it's been a difficult week. It's been it's been quite a week. We found out that James is going to remain in prison uh until May 3 to to 5th till his trial uh unless an appeal is made which won't likely happen until April. So at least another another month in prison for Pastor James for his commitment to shepherd Grace Life Church. And unless he effectively agrees to shut down Grace Life Church and leave 85% of the people of his congregation uh, without fellowship, he is going to remain in prison for the, for the remainder of his time. James is resolved to follow his conscience and remain in jail. And Grace Bible Fellowship also here, we are resolved to continue to serve the Lord and and build up his church. Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on uh, what I called the glorious church of Jesus Christ from Ephesians chapter 3. And we saw in that passage, if, if you were here with us, that, that the church is God's plan to bring glory to himself. And we saw that the church puts God's wisdom on display, not only for the world to see, but also for the principalities and powers or the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We saw that the church is worth suffering for. And in fact, it's a privilege to know about and minister in the church of Jesus Christ. I think it's really important for us in the days and months ahead to have a high view of the church. If this whole situation continues much longer, I think there's going to be a a great temptation. And really, we've already seen this played out. There's a a great temptation to abandon the church. Many professing Christians have already basically abandoned the church. For all intents and purposes, they they have left the church. But if we abandon the church, we are abandoning God's plan for our spiritual growth. And if we abandon the church, we're abandoning God's plan to reach the lost. And so I want us to know about these things. And and I think we do here, but, but sadly, many, many professing Christians don't know or value the church. And they do so to their own spiritual harm. Maybe they don't even recognize the harm that it's doing in their lives, but to forsake the church means we are forsaking God's plan for our own spiritual growth, and that results in spiritual harm. Now, one of the ways that we see this low view of the church play out is in the way that many churches have responded to these COVID restrictions and to, and even to Pastor James's arrest. I don't know if you're on social media a little bit in in some of these places on the internet, but when you see fellow brothers and sisters and how they've responded to James's arrest and what the kinds of things that they're saying. Maybe I could could kind of put it another way. Have you noticed how few churches there are in this in this whole country who are willing to remain fully open? So few are willing to remain fully open? Or have you noticed how few are willing to take a stand for Pastor James? Even so few kind of well-known pastors are just very, very quiet right now about this whole thing. Many have actually criticized Grace Life Church for continuing to shepherd the flock there. Others have said nothing or next to nothing about the situation. And I mean people and groups like the Gospel Coalition of Canada. You know, they, 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 this coalition of gospel-minded churches who are, the reason they coalesced was to make a stand for these kinds of things and they are silent or negative about the whole situation. Now, now I, you know, I understand, I, I think I do, that many believers have different views on Romans 13 or where the line in the sand should be. You know, many believers and churches and pastors have different views on on when government overreach is too much and and where the line is where we say, I can't do what the government demands and, and be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it gets even more difficult, and I, I acknowledge this when the, the reason given is a, a global pandemic, whatever you think of, of the pandemic. But here's my, my point in this. It seems like there's so few Christians and so few churches and so few Christian leaders who are willing to stand with a brother who is standing for his convictions. And so even if you disagree where Grace Life drew the line, shouldn't we support and, and stand with a church that is willing to stand for God's people? And isn't it kind of arrogant to look at Grace Life from across town or from across the province or from across the, the country with no knowledge of the workings of that church and then disagree with where they drew the line? Isn't that kind of a little bit arrogant? Like you know better than the elders and leaders that are at that church trying to shepherd those people? Do you think that that you know better? I'm talking to not, maybe not to you, but to somebody maybe listening online. Do you think that, that you know better than the pastors and the elders of that church? Now, I, I need to be careful, and I think I think we need to be careful about this too, because when we look at other churches... We don't know their situation either. We don't know what, what their thinking is and we don't know how, how their church is functioning and operating and what, how the people are doing. And so we can look at them and say, well, you need to open your church. And I, I think there's a, a, an extent, a, a sense in which they, I think they, they should open their church and we should open our churches, but we don't know what's exactly going on in those churches. And so we need to be careful as well. It could very well be that many of the pastors in Canada have uh, have a whole bunch of teaching to do before it would be wise to open their churches. Many churches don't understand Peter and Paul's teaching in Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2 2 to 4 which uh, yeah 1 Peter chapter 2 to, to chapter 4 where it talks about submission to government. We are to submit to government, but both Peter and Paul recognize that God is a higher authority and that there's a, a time when a believer will, will suffer for obeying God over and, and against the government. And many churches and Christians and even pastors don't understand this teaching and that, so they need to be taught these things before it would be wise for them to open the church. You see, if you think about it, no Christian would ever suffer if they always obeyed the government without discerning if it's right to do so. Right? Can you follow that? If, if every Christian always submitted to and, and did what the government told them to do, there would never be persecution. And obviously Peter and Paul didn't do that. Peter and Paul were both martyred for continuing to practice Christianity, which was illegal in Rome. And so pastors need to, I would say, at least prepare their people by teaching on these things. Another area that needs to be taught, as I said a, a few weeks ago, is the importance of the church. And with it, the importance of Christian fellowship. Many Christians think they're, they're, they're getting the same benefits they used to get by watching a worship service on live stream. I've, I've interacted with many people on Twitter who say they're getting plenty of things out of, out of the, out of their pastor's teaching and preaching through live stream. And in many cases, it's true. They are, they are getting the same benefits they used to get by watching the live stream. The, the problem is they're, they're missing the fact that the gathering of the church isn't merely about taking in a service. You know, you're here right now and it's not necessarily only about listening to the preaching of God's Word. There's to be a, a fellowship and an interaction as we all listen to God's Word and grow together and interact with one another and encourage one another and spur one another on in the, the teaching that we're receiving from God's Word. That's all an important part of a, a gathering and many Christians don't understand that. And that's what I, I wrote that little blog post about that a, a few weeks ago. And I, I, I meant to bring some of those here, but I forgot to print them out. But if, if you're interested in that or want to know more about that, I would, I would encourage you to check out what I wrote there. What we do here is supposed to be more than just listening to a sermon. We're not meant to be spectators. We're meant to gather for encouragement and for service and to, to spur one another on to love and good works. 
And listening to the preaching of God's Word is part of the gathering, and, and you can do that online. But what makes the preaching all the more beneficial is when we all hear it together and we talk about how to apply it to our lives when we, and when we see one another live it out and we see somebody putting the things that we were taught in God's Word into practice, that's all part of what's supposed to happen in the Christian gathering. And so many Christians don't recognize the importance of biblical fellowship or many Christians haven't even experienced what true biblical fellowship is. See, Scripture teaches us that we need Desperately, we need one another. And we neglect fellowship to our own spiritual harm. And so Christians need to be taught these things. Now, I want to say this, and I know you guys are on the same page here, really, but I I feel like I, I need to say this for the world or for the camera or for whatever, but I don't believe that we can have biblical fellowship with a mask on if we are six feet apart from one another at all times. Another important part of our gathering is singing God's praise together. Early on, we did stop singing for a bit, and I I think that was a mistake. You know, the early church, according to Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and we are to do the same. And I want you to just think about this, and, and, and I don't know if, if other people who, are, who might listen online will even be able to understand this, but can you imagine this year, and you can kind of trace this year pretty easily because I came about a year ago in, uh, I think I came February 1st, and so it's been a year and a month since I've been here, but can you imagine this year what it would have been like if we had fully complied with every health order, everyone for the last whole year and a month would have had a, a, a mask on, everyone over two years old. We would have been six feet of separation from one another at all times when we came together. At all times, in any situation, in any setting, six feet apart, there would have been no singing except maybe the song leaders, and they would have had to have been separated too, and they would have had to have worn masks. We would have had to leave immediately after the service so that there would have been no interaction and fellowship with one another, even at the six feet distance from one another, where we were to to immediately leave after the service. And there were no gatherings with other believers outside of the church, except in small numbers during the summer. But really since December, we would have had no gatherings, no interaction with anyone outside of our own homes. And think about it, the, the reasoning behind this is all because of a virus that might have caused some of us to go to the hospital or might have possibly resulted in somebody dying. But we didn't do those things and nobody died. None of us were even hospitalized. So what do we say in light of this? Is it, is it worth or would it have been worth the harm to our spiritual growth to give all of this up for the whole year? And for myself and my own conscience, I say, no, it wouldn't have been worth it. I say that our, our spiritual lives and even our physical lives, because this, this has implications for our physical lives as well. I think that these things are, are too important to have followed the health orders all year. I, I think our, our fellowship and our spiritual health and uh, is too valuable and would have been harmed too drastically to give all of these things up. Now, I've said all along, too, that each of us needs to follow our own conscience on this and be fully convinced in our own minds. And I think that's why you're here this morning, because you are fully convinced in your own minds. I don't tell you what to do, although I do try to persuade you from Scripture and from from reasoning. Now, as I kind of even say this, I can hear an objection coming to all this, and, and I can hear somebody on my Twitter feed saying, well, isn't it worth all of the hassle if we saved just one life? 
And that's a great question. And I'm sympathetic to that line of reasoning. I really am. I think death is a tragedy. And whenever somebody dies, we grieve. And I don't want to be responsible for anybody's death. I I really don't want to be responsible for somebody getting sick and possibly dying. But just hold on a minute here. When or since when do we hold people responsible for spreading germs? You think about that? When when has this started? Did we do this two years ago? We would be careful, or at least most of us would be careful. I have to say that most of us would be careful if we were sick. We would have, most of us would have stayed home so that we didn't spread the germs. But even if somebody came sick, we wouldn't hold them responsible for the sickness. But now we apparently we hold healthy people accountable for spreading sickness they don't even have. You realize that? That's what, that's what's kind of happening in the world. We hold healthy people accountable for spreading sickness in a gathering when none of them are actually even sick. But even more to the point, let's go back to the question, is it worth it or, or would it have been worth it to basically shut down the church last year to save one life? Now, first and again, I say nobody died. We didn't shut down and nobody died. But second, the question betrays this, this falsehood that seems to capture the, have captured the world. People are going to die no matter what we do or how we live. People are going to die of sicknesses in this world no matter what we do. And it seems that the world has forgotten this right now. Plus, the, the question betrays something else which our world and government fails to recognize. And this is very, very important. And this is spiritual death. You know, spiritual death is when people die outside of Christ. And to die without Christ is to die eternally. To die without Christ means to die and face judgment and hell. And the world and the government can't recognize this. We are not doing anyone any good. Listen, we are not doing anyone any good if we only think of their physical life. How many souls would be lost if we closed the church? Or if we prolonged one person's physical health but failed in this last year to equip ourselves for our eternal work of bringing people to Jesus Christ? We can never ultimately stop people from dying physically, but we can be used to bring people spiritual and eternal life. Now, for those pastors and maybe church members who happen to listen to this on online, I'm telling you that, that you need to consider these things. And you need to recognize the importance of these things, the importance of the church, the importance of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if your church isn't ready for full opening, you need to move your church towards obedience to Christ and, for, and, and going back to what we once did. You know, the scripture told Israel to quarantine sick people and let the healthy people work and continue to live. And if I had to err, and I, and I just I admit that there's, there's some difficulty in this whole situation and I, I, I struggle with exactly where to draw the line. But if I had to err on one side or the other of this whole situation, I would choose to err on the side of obedience to the scriptural commands for fellowship for building the church, for worship, and spiritual encouragement. I'll rather err looking at the eternal soul rather than merely looking at somebody's physical health. And I recognize too that I'm not going to win people to Christ by looking good in the world's eyes. And I think that's honestly a a part of the motivation in this whole thing is that that we want to look good in the world's eyes but I want to I want to win people to Christ and I realize we'll win people to Christ not by looking good in the world's eyes but be by being faithful to the scripture. The world has gone crazy. And I I don't know even how to say it any better. The world has gone crazy. And I think some people think that if we can show the world that we're we're just like them in our excessive concern for others then then maybe we can tell them about Christ. But I say, no, we need to show them that we are different. 
And we do care. Since when has the church not cared about people's physical health? We care about people's physical health more than, than anyone throughout history. We do care about people's physical health, but, and we always have, but we also recognize that, that we have an eternal hope that enables us to look past this world and to look past the physical to the spiritual, to the soul. Christians have always been the first to risk sickness to minister to others because we know that if we die, we will live with Christ forever. And I would just want to reaffirm for you all that I am willing to die or to go to jail so that we can continue to build one another up in our most holy faith. And I really do sincerely believe that. I am, I am willing to die or go to jail so that we can continue to build one another up in our most holy faith. And I believe that's what we're to do and to be faithful to the Lord in this time. But it seems like many Christians are unwilling to make that stand. And they're unwilling to even stand with those who are. And to see this, if you are seeing it at all, can be quite discouraging. I think many of of you have expressed to me and many pastors across the country have expressed to me this last few weeks that it's quite discouraging and frustrating to see what's happening with the church. It's discouraging and frustrating and sad to see so many churches remain closed and to ignore the spiritual health and good of their congregations or to to kind of cater to the, the world's thinking on this whole situation. You know, if you think about it, in Edmonton, there are almost one million people. And I know of one church that says we won't close 85% of the people out. One church that says, if you want to come, if you want to come, I will or we will be open for you so that you can worship and fellowship with one another. And their pastor's in prison. In Calgary, there's one and a half million people, and I know of one church like that in Calgary. Now, there, there may be more, but I know of one church. One church that's willing to publicly say, we are open, come what may. Now, I knew that it was bad in Canada, and that's why I wanted to come to Canada after I graduated from seminary, but I, I didn't know it was this bad. And it can be discouraging and and frustrating and one could almost feel betrayed and say, where are the shepherds in this country? I know that there are more than we know who are quietly caring for their people, maybe maybe somewhat following the health regulations, but, but if there was ever a time to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, surely it is now. The glorious church of Jesus Christ that we studied last time, at least in Canada, is weak. The glorious church of Jesus Christ seems to be neglecting itself and denying itself and and really harming itself. And the situation is somewhat similar to what the Apostle John was facing in 96 A.D. And you could open with me then to the the book of Revelation. But in 96 AD, the Apostle John, the last remaining apostle, was on Patmos, imprisoned for the gospel. He was on the, the island of Patmos, imprisoned for the gospel. And the church of Asia Minor, where he was last ministering, was weak. The church in Ephesus was doing the right things, according to chapter 2 of Revelation, but they had lost their first love. The church at Pergamum in chapter 2, starting at verse 12, had welcomed idolatry and immorality. The church in Thyatira, chapter 2 and verse 18, was tolerating sin in her midst. The church in Sardis Chapter 3, had a name of being alive, but in reality she was dead. She was asleep. 
And the church of Laodicea was lukewarm, just like the water of that town, and it was good for nothing. It wasn't refreshing to drink, and it wasn't nice and warm, like a nice uh, warm kind of hot springs. It was lukewarm and good for nothing. And that church in Laodicea, they thought they were rich, but they were in reality wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so of the seven churches in Asia Minor, five of them were in need of repentance. Only Philadelphia and Smyrna, both facing persecution, were fully honoring the Lord and, and, and the Lord had nothing against them. And this is only 60 some years after Jesus rose again and founded the church. And already much of the visible church is actually lost. Many in the church were not even saved, hence the call to repent. They were people associated the church but weren't truly born again, and so the Lord calls them to repent. The church was weak because many lacked true spiritual life. But there were still true believers in each of them. And Jesus called them to overcome their situation by trusting in Him And the rest he called to repentance and faith. And these seven churches of ancient ancient Asia Minor represent the church today and the church throughout history. Many churches are spiritually weak, unsaved, unable to overcome by faith, close to being cast away and eternally lost. Many churchgoers are on the religious road that leads to hell. And John must have at least been tempted to discouragement when he saw the church near the end of his ministry. So much sin, so little faithfulness, and we too can feel this way. The answer for John and really for us is to look beyond the state of the church on earth. And so what we need is a, a vision of the glorious church of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we see this massive gap between the church and what the church is called to be and what the church actually is on earth. And in these times, we need to see the glorious Christ of the church. I called this message the glorious Christ of the church. And what we see in our text today is four glorious truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. And these four glorious truths about Christ are here so that they might propel the church of John's day to overcome. And also they propel the church in our day to do the same. The book of Revelation is meant to equip us to overcome the trials of the world. And so again, we're going to see four truths to propel the church to overcome. And we're going to read from Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 to 20, but our our focus is really going to be on verses 12 to 18 today. So Revelation chapter 1, read with me starting at verse 9. says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. 
And in his mouth, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John presents himself in verse 9 as our brother. And he's a partner, a, a fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He says, I, I'm suffering with you in the Lord. I'm on the prison island of Patmos and, and you are in the, the so-called free world, but to, we are together in Christ, suffering together, building the kingdom together, enduring patiently together. And on the Lord's Day, on, on Sunday, John had this vision, and the Lord told him to write it and send it to the churches. And in verses 12 to 18, he tells us about this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, we're going to see four glorious truths about the Lord Jesus Christ to propel the church to overcome. So four glorious truths about the Lord Jesus Christ to propel the church to overcome. And the first glorious truth is that Christ is present with His church. Look again at verse 12, and it says there, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. And so we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is present with His church. And so John turns around and he, he heard this, this voice in verse 10 that was like a trumpet, and now he turns to see who has this trumpet-like voice. Who is speaking? And as he turns to see, he sees seven golden lampstands. And the lampstands represent the seven churches. From verse 11, it says there, say, saying, right... Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then if you look at verse 20, it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven lampstands are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and so forth. Now every part of this vision carries meaning. And, and, and the first thing that we see are the seven lampstands. And they're made of gold. And they represent the seven churches. And really those, these seven churches represent the entire church throughout history. Now the gold of these lampstands speaks to the value of the church. And the number seven shows the completeness that these seven represent all the churches of all time. But they were literally seven churches in, in Asia Minor along this postal route. And there was this circular postal route that went from Ephesus around back to Laodicea and then back to Ephesus. Now lampstands give light. And in the ancient world without light bulbs, the lampstand would be the way to light up a room, to light up a dark place. And as the lampstands give light in darkness, so the church is called to be the light of the world. And the one who's, who's, the one speaking whose voice was like a trumpet. And in verse 15, his voice was like the roar of many waters. He is in the midst of the lampstand. And of course, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one like a son of man. 
One like a son of man. That saying comes from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 and Daniel 10 and verse 16 and points forward to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice especially here that Christ is in the midst or in the middle of the churches. Now these churches, as you can read about in chapter 2 and chapter 3, they are all either weak or persecuted or struggling in some way. Each of them is facing a difficulty and five of the seven, as I said, are in need of repentance and turning back to the Lord. But these churches that are all either weak or persecuted have the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of them. He's in the middle of these churches. All seven are facing major difficulties and struggles on earth, but Christ is there in their midst. And He has not forgotten about them, even if they have forgotten about Him. And He loves them, even if they have left their love for Him. Some of them may not even belong. Some of the people that belong to those churches may not even truly belong to the church universal. But those who are, are one body with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are true believers are one with Him and united to Him. And so in Ephesians 5.29, this truth applies. Paul says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. You see, the true church of Jesus Christ is members of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore He nourishes and cherishes His body. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus calls His disciples to go and make disciples of all nations and He ends by saying, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Hebrews 13 and verse 5, the author says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, and it's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ there, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus will never forsake his church. He is one body with the church. He is with us to the end of the age. In John chapter 14, verse 21, he told his disciples that he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then in verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so whatever the state of the church, whatever state the church is in, Christ is in her midst. And He is calling her to repentance by sending His Word. And He strengthens His true disciples. And He ministers to His flock. And He disciplines those who stray. And He is with us in the midst of us. He is present with us. And so the first glorious truth about the Lord is that Christ is present with us. And that should propel us to serve the Lord and His church, no matter what state the church is in in our generation. We should serve the Lord and serve His church because we know that He is with us and He is in the midst of us, no matter how bad it gets or how bad it seems. He has not forsaken His church, no matter how she appears. The Lord is in our midst. He cannot forsake His own body. And so the second then glorious truth about the church from this passage, the second truth about the Lord Jesus Christ to propel the church to overcome is number two, Christ is priest of His church. And we see that in the second part of verse 13 and the first part of verse 14. And here we see that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Verse 13 says, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Then it says, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. 
And we'll stop there for now. Now this long robe may may remind us of the robe in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1 says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. This is a kingly vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And kings wore robes with long trails or long uh, tails as a sign of their glory and their majesty. And so here the King, the the Lord Jesus Christ, is sitting on His throne high and lifted up and His his majesty fills the entire temple. But in the Old Testament era, the other person who wore robes were the priests. And that seems to be the case in Revelation chapter 1. The golden sash is a sign of a priest and the, the priest would wear a golden sash and a long robe. And this priest, his hair is pure white like snow, like white wool. We see the same thing in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. The, the, the purity of fresh white snow represents the forgiveness of sins. So Psalm 51 and verse 7, David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And of course in Isaiah 51 is David's psalm of repentance and asking for forgiveness for his sin. And so he, he asked the Lord to wash him and make him whiter than snow. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, Yahweh speaks and He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is the the sinless and holy one and He is the pure and spotless Lamb of God. He is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And He came to take away our sins and in Him there is no sin. His purity and His holiness are seen in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. says it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Our Lord tells us there is a, a high priest and He is holy and innocent and unstained and, and pure and white like snow. He is the sinless Savior. He is the, 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 the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's especially as our high priest that He needed to be holy. The high priest is the one who represented the people to God. And the high priest was the one who made atonement for the sins of the people so that they could draw near to this holy God. And in the Old Testament, the high priest would sacrifice a pure and unblemished animal in the place for the the sinful and blemished people. And the animal then died in the place of the people. The people had sinned, but the animal died on their behalf. And the animal's blood was used to cleanse the people so that God could look favorably on them. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The penalty for sin is death. So forgiveness of sins must include the payment of that penalty. The payment must be made by somebody else if we're to live and be forgiven of our sins. And Hebrews 10 and verse 4 says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so for us to be forgiven, blood had to be shed and that blood had to be human blood. The blood of bulls and goats in, in the Old Testament then pointed forward to what Jesus Christ would do. Why don't you just actually turn with me just to back a little bit to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. And we're just kind of building this, this understanding of what it means that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. What does it mean that He's clothed with this robe and He's got this golden sash and He's dressed like a high priest? Well, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 says this, 
Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And then there's this contrast between the high priest or the priest of the Old Testament and Christ. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Now skip down to verse 15 and it says there, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. When there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so Jesus offered a once-for-all-time offering for sin. And so Jesus is both the priest and the offering. And by His blood, we can be forgiven of our sins and our lawless deeds because He died in our place. He bled for our sins. And now God will no longer remember our sins or our lawless deeds. In the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. And even better than that, God counts us as righteous because when He looks at us, He sees us as He sees His holy and beloved Son. And so as our representative, as our great high priest, Christ has acted to reconcile us to God by spilling His blood for us and by living a perfect, righteous, and holy life. And now through this great high priest, we can draw near to the holy God and not receive wrath from Him, but receive mercy and grace and have a relationship with Him. Through Jesus Christ, we can draw near to God. And so if you're here this morning and and you haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you haven't come to God through Jesus Christ, I would just call you to turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a great high priest and He will welcome everyone who comes to Him by faith. And so you too can have your sins and your lawless deeds forgiven if you would turn from them and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a great high priest, and as high priest, He draws us to God. Now the third truth about Christ in this passage that's meant to propel us to overcome the world and to overcome our contemporary situation is number three, Christ is judge for His church. He is the judge, and notice the difference, He is the judge for His church. Christ will judge us as the church in a a judgment of rewards. But we have passed by His judgment for our sins because our sins are forgiven in Him. But those outside of Christ will be judged for their sins and they will pay for their sins. And the judgment of the world that is coming when Christ returns is going to be a judgment that results in our redemption. You see, when Christ returns, He will judge the world and He will reward His people. And so their judgment becomes our salvation realized. And we see this in our passage in verse 14. In the second part of verse 14, it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And His voice was like the roar of many waters. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And the idea is that that this Lord Jesus Christ, this exalted Lord in the midst of His churches, He sees all. He sees everything that is happening. He sees every thought and every motive and every secret thing is before Him. Nothing is hidden from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. As God, Christ sees all and He is, He is prepared to judge all. His, the, the fire in His eyes speak of the judgment that's about to come on the world. You see, many people think of Jesus as loving and, and moral and this, this kind of loving moral teacher. 
And he was loving and he was moral and he was a teacher, but he's also the holy judge of the world. And one day he will return to this world and he will destroy his enemies and he will conquer the world for his church. One day all evil will be cast into the lake of fire and God's people will reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you just turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, we can see this this judgment that is coming on the world. And notice the similarity of the language used here in Revelation 19. We'll start reading at verse 11. It says, <coughs> excuse me, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen White and pure were following Him on white horses. This is a picture here of the Lord Jesus Christ coming back in the second coming, coming with His church. That's us in fine linen, white and pure, and we're following Him on white horses. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice when Christ returns, He he who once drank the wrath of God for those who, who He saves now comes and pours out the wrath of God on the unbelieving world that's in rebellion with Him. And note this, this Jesus who, who died for sins is now the one who comes to judge the world. And this bloody scene that we see, this, this Savior who comes with, with blood dipped on his robe, he, he comes to, to conquer his enemies. And this scene then leads to chapter 20 where we reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then the final judgment in Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 and following. And then after that, the eternal state. And so with burning eyes and, and a perfect judgment, with perfect knowledge of every person's sin, and with burnished bronze, burning feet, Jesus will judge His enemies and His His voice is like a mighty roar. And so the same Jesus who died for sinners will one day make sinners die. And for those outside of Christ, that is a terrifying thought. One that should cause you to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are in Christ, this judgment, again, is the realization of our salvation. And what can propel us to overcome now more than the thought that all the wrongs in this world will be righted? We know that Christ will be victorious. We know that eternity is ours and that it will be ours shortly. We know that our trials and tribulations are temporary. And we know that Christ will come and bring us to where He is and we will reign with Him forever and ever. And that should motivate us and encourage us to be faithful no matter what happens now. Christ is the judge for His church. And then number four, let's see last of all that Christ is Lord of His church. In verses 16-18. to So go back to chapter 1. and Look again at verse 16. It says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now we could all actually call this heading number four. We could say Christ is Lord of all. And He is Lord of all, but this is meant as an encouragement for the church. And so we say Christ is Lord of His church. And it starts with seven stars in His right hand. And again in verse 20 it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now that Greek word angels also means messengers. And I think that's the the better translation here. These are the messengers. And these are the ones who who bring John's message to the church. There's certain people that are, that are going to bring the message to the church and call them to repent and call them and, and encourage them for what they're doing well. And these messengers are, are to, to go and, and take John's message to the churches. And Christ holds these messengers in His right hand. He's in control of the messengers. And he holds them in his hand and he, he sends people to speak truth to his churches. And the two-edged sword is God's word and it's the, the weapon that he'll use against his enemies in chapter 19. This vision of, of, of John was something like the transfiguration in, in, in which also it also says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And so John saw the glory of the Lord. And so Jesus is Lord of His church. He's Lord of all. He's he's Lord of the messengers. And He's the Lord of glory. And John responded to this, this vision like everyone who saw God does in Scripture. He fell down as dead and he feared greatly for his life. A sight of God and His glory reveals our own sin and unworthiness. But the Lord comforted John and he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus tells John who he is. He is the first and the last. God described Himself this way in the book of Isaiah. And the idea here is that He is the Lord of time. He is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. And He is also the living One. Like the Father, Jesus has life in Himself. He says in John 14 that He is the life. And so He is the Lord of life. He died and He rose again. The living One died never to die again. He died for our salvation to conquer death on our behalf. And it says that He holds the keys of death and Hades. He's in control of who dies and who enters into Hades. He is the Lord of both life and death. And this sovereign Lord is the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So we need to look with the eyes of faith above what we see on earth. On earth we see the church wrestle with compromise and false teaching. We see the church in immorality and weakness and sin. We see the church struggle on earth, but we need to look up above the earth and see this glorious Lord. He is sovereign and He is building His church. He is preparing His bride to be with Him forever. And in heaven we will see the true church in all of her glory. Christ is Lord of the church. He is present with His church. He is the priest of His church. He is our great high priest who cleansed us of sin and presents us to His Father without blemish. He is the judge for His church and He is coming soon to deliver us from our enemies and from His enemies and to establish His everlasting kingdom. And this vision that John had and that John shared with us is meant to empower us to stand firm in this world and to continue to serve the Lord in His church until that day in which He returns. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank You for this vision of Christ. And we admit, Father, that we have been discouraged and 
frustrated with the church and with all that we see happening in this world. But we thank you for this vision that, that of, of the Lord Jesus Christ that shows us His glory, that shows us that He is in our midst even still. We thank you, Lord, that you are with us always until the end of the age. We thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that you have united us to yourself, that we are your body and that you nourish and cherish us. And we pray for the church in Canada and the world that you would nourish and cherish us and strengthen us and make us glorious for your glory. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.